Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ellen, a PhD student in anthropology, and I study intimacy and finance uh, among the white working class in West Virginia. This is Munira Habballah, and I'm at UCI in the anthropology department doing my PhD. I'm Anne, second year PhD in comparative literature, and I do work on race, media, humor, and critical refugee studies. This is Jill Chen. I'm from Complete Department. I'm on a first year PhD in UCI. My study is related to explore how certain identities making, like racial identities or gender identities, is complicit in nation state making. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Dehan. I'm um I think fourth year uh, PhD student in the Department of Drama, and I work on um, looking at uh, prisoner swaps, hostage uh, ransom through um, this lens of performance studies and looking at the performativity of value. So in spring of 2018, Kezia Dom, a white Utah teenager, posted photos of herself and her prom date on Facebook. She was wearing a red kipao or changsam. Am I saying that right? Does anybody know? Changsan. Changsan. And qipao. And qipao, which are, is a kind of traditional Chinese dress. And the post was picked up by a Twitter user called Jeremy Lamb, who tweeted the photo and said, quote, my culture is not your prom dress. I'm proud of my culture, including the extreme barriers marginalized people within that culture have had to overcome. For it to be simply subject to American consumerism and cater to a white audience is parallel to colonial ideology. Dom, the, the girl wearing the dress, responded that she, quote, loves and appreciates other cultures and that she, quote, meant no hate. She explained that she would not take the post down because she didn't feel she'd done anything wrong. The situation was covered in the media, which largely focused on the response of Chinese people, not necessarily Asian Americans, to Dom's dress and to Lamb's criticism. The Washington Post story on the issue highlighted tweets from people who identified themselves as Chinese and expressed support for Dom. USA Today ran two stories, one with the headline, Chinese are okay with Utah teens controversial Changsam prom dress. <laughs> that was my favorite. And there were a whole bunch of other articles in Fox News and on a lot of blogs. To me, the media coverage is almost more interesting than the incident itself. Yeah. And like um, that USA Today is obviously not a publication that I would hold to a particularly high standard. But even for them, right, that's kind of an out there um, headline. But some of the questions that raised for me um, is like how intention and offense matter in adjudicating these kinds of things. Um, what the act of calling this teenage girl racist does, kind of in the sense of what Asad was talking about in the piece on uh, entitlement racism that we read. Jeremy Lam um, seemed to accuse that uh, Kezia... Who, Kezia Dom, I think is how you say it. Kezia Dom to cultural appropriation. And he says that, like, Kezia seems know nothing about the history of Chongsam. So I will just edit some comments about the history and background, how Chongsam is developed. So actually, Chongsam is not traditional 
dress for women is actually a dress for men in traditional China. So actually, it was after the 1911 revolution that women take the idea of women's liberations that they also want to wear what the man wears to as a sign of a man's liberation. So actually, Chongsan is not uh, by no means represent traditional at all. That's funny because every article I read about this calls it a traditional Chinese dress. That's like yeah, in every single that's article. That's by no means. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Is it common knowledge? No, not at all. Oh, it's, it's not, not common knowledge it's that it's originally from. In China? Not, not common knowledge in China at all, but it's... If you have some history background, you would know this because it's just because my MA thesis have something to do with 1911 revolution. So I know that. Wow. So what I was thinking about is how this is kind of, um, it's a strange question to even be asking. So it's like interesting to um, discuss why we're asking this in the first place, like what assumptions we have. Yeah. And it's kind of um, also about the commodification of culture, right? And the fact that we can take it as an object and then plagiarize it in a sense. So it was kind of like, um, I feel like it parallels discussions of um, intellectual property, privatization of this stuff, right? And um, yeah, like ownership. And I just, I don't know how I feel about that fully. I agree, especially because, I mean, I do think it's relevant to mention here that my first impulse in reading this is to distinguish what's going on here and the conversation around it from what happens when, let's say, like a big brand, like when, um, I forget her name, that um, artist took up like Harajuku girls and like branded her, Gwen Stefani, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that's really different because this isn't a um, like a big company marketing this Mm -hmm. to white America, you know what I mean? And, and it, I think it's interesting that it gets talked about in sort of the same terms. And I, I'm not saying that that makes it a better situation, but mm-hmm. I, I think that's an interesting point, right? How do we even take that up as like a understandable thing that we can, that we can grasp, right? I think one of the um, questions that comes to my mind and kind of can't be ignored is, is, the, is around, you know, the issues around cultural appropriation and power differentials, right? And what is being appropriated and by whom? And, right. um, con- you know, conventionally, it seems like the, the you know, the, the most problematic appropriations have to do with, you know, the, the hegemon appropriating kind of the marginalized culture in, in a, as a way of, let's say, uh, either celebrating it, fetishizing it, right? So in this situation, that isn't as clear, Right. That differential isn't as clear. So I I have questions about kind of the, you know, how where we what is the part of appropriation that is offensive and why do we find it offensive? Is it does it have to do with that differential right of privilege versus lack of privilege? And even if that's even operative in this situation. Yeah, and I'm also wondering about to what extent do you consider that the accusation of cultural appropriation will be valid when regarding to this case, I mean, do based on what kind of intentions do you think that would be that would make the the accusation valid? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I'm totally unfamiliar with cultural appropriation, which because uh, I mean I was by no means a minority in my own country. <laughs> Seems I'm always the majority because Taiwan's is uh, the majority of Taiwanese are 
all Han Chinese. And I mean, for me, the the thing that is that's similar to cultural appropriation in my own country is like when we want to promote that, when we promote Aboriginal cultures, but while also appropriating their identity by claiming that oh, we are multiculturalism, so there is no racist in Taiwan, something like that. So it's always just multiculturalism, multiculturalism. or kind of like the student, this teenager said, I, she said, I appreciate and love other cultures, so I can't have done anything wrong. Yeah, right? yeah, something like that. So I, I just don't understand the context in the U.S., so I would like to hear from you. I actually think the culture in the U.S. is a little bit similar because of that multicultural rhetoric. So, like, when you were kind of talking, Ellen, about, like, how do we differentiate between corporate commodification and everyday kinds of racism? And and should we and how should we? And, And then do we use the same terms? But what I was thinking about, I was thinking actually about Sarah Ahmed's article um, on progressive racism, because this idea of progressive racism and the rhetoric of multiculturalism as like diverse, as progressive is, I think this is actually a case in point in which the white liberal figure, oh, I'm celebrating difference, then Mm -hmm. embodies anti-racist kind of rhetoric, right, as a defense almost, and that if anybody contests, that's actually getting in the way of, right, this path forged by white liberalism of anti-racism. So I think the multicultural aspect of that, of like kind of forefronting this defense of the culturally insensitive act is actually in line with what you're saying, Jill, about like kind of forefronting. It's not racist, it's multicultural, it's the opposite, Right. right? Is she white, though? Yeah. She is. Okay. The student? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I was yeah. looking at the student. The student is right. Yeah. It's white. <laughs> Did you see it? Are you looking at the picture? Yeah, I'm just looking at the picture and trying to figure out if, if there's an ethnicity or if there are any things that have to be teased out about that. But So, so one thing, one question that I really had that I guess ties to several of the readings that we've been talking about, especially, yeah, the Ahmed, the Assad... Mm-hmm. Um, is what what does it do in the world to call this this girl out for cultural appropriation on Twitter? And and that I don't mean that. I think it sounds like I'm saying like people shouldn't do that, and that's not that's not what I mean at all. I'm just like very curious because most of the Twitter criticisms, which again didn't get picked up in the media stuff, they just said oh people didn't like it because it's cultural appropriation. But the tweets they quoted were usually from Chinese people saying no, actually we we like it, you know. Um, not so much the tweets from mostly Asian Americans and white Americans saying she really shouldn't have done this. So what does it do for somebody like Jeremy Lamb? What kind of act in the world is it for him to say this is racist, right? Like what does it achieve or foreclose or what act is that, you know? Yeah. But I was wondering if the Jeremy Lamb is intended to like to make this as a parody for Jeremy Lin's, for what? <laughs> for Jeremy Lin's incident, mm-hmm. because I mean Jeremy, Jeremy Lin had a hairstyle which is called cultural appropriation of uh, African Americans just sometimes ago, but it was just like, I mean, the the two controversies are treated quite differently, I think, based on what I'd heard from the mainstream media, but I just can't confirm if the Jeremy Lamb intended this as a parody or not. Mm. So I just want to hear from you. 
I didn't read it that way at all. Not at all. I thought he was very sincere in saying, like, this is my... He said, my culture is not your goddamn prom dress and that kind of thing. Did did anybody else read it as a parody? No. No, but um, were you saying that he was actually involved in that other... No, I'm not oh. sure because he's calling him. I mean, his username is Jeremy Lam, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that record that makes me recall that incident just happened shortly before this this Pranjara's controversies. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's like in 20s. I'm not sure when did it occur, but it was like in the same year or just. Just around 2016, that Jermaine had a hairstyle just that, uh, according to his t- uh, Brooklyn Nets teammates, who is African-American, so he made a uh, hairstyle that's very similar to Muslim African-American they had here. But after having that kind of hairstyle, that Jermaine was suddenly accused of culture appropriation by other NBA players. But Jermaine just retorted back that, so how can you just tattoo those stupid Chinese <laughs> characters on your, on your body without saying that yourself are also culture appropriating Chinese culture? Something like that. Mm. Yeah, but uh, I think some of the, uh, the mainstream NBA environment just didn't still think that the accusations for Jermaine actually is valid. So I was kind of a bit confused. So why does it there seems like double standard between these two events? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So Jill, I I feel like. What you mentioned about how like they're they're very different approaches to this yeah. question of multiculturalism because on the one hand with Jeremy Lin he kind of is like well you do this too so it's like a normalizing of like cultural appropriation yeah. he's like you know our whole world is borrowing and whatever right and th- I think that's very different from the the reception of this event too right I think in in both I- events the Twitter reaction or like the kind of like social media reaction. I think is important. I, I I mean, I feel very like split on what this actually does, as you said, Ellen, like, does it, what does it enable? What does it foreclose? Right? Like these discussions. So on the one hand, it, it like fosters that discourse around race and kind of forefronting it. And I think that's important. I mean, I think we grew up in it or like we're in it now. So it seems like a lot and a lot of people say it's unnecessary, but I think it's actually important because this hasn't been like race and racial discussions or discussions on racism isn't necessarily like hasn't always been at the forefront of, right. of, of like how we talk about race in America. But I also think that this is this can also be another case of the left attacking the left, right? Which mm-hmm. is arguable because multiculturalism is like just progressive racism might not be left. But it feels, I think what it forecloses is people who feel like they're doing something good or doing something that's like, I don't know, like celebrating difference then feels kind of cornered. And then that's when we have this like split and the conversation closes down and it it makes people feel like they have to defend themselves. And that's where we get this conflict, I think, between leftists and other so like liberal people. And progressives maybe. Yeah. So. I just want to slow something down for clarification because I want to make sure I'm understanding this. On the one hand, we're talking about um, Jeremy Lamb 
on the one hand, we're talking about Jeremy Lamb, who's responding to this young woman in Utah. Yeah. But then you're also saying that Jeremy Lin, the basketball player, yeah. wearing cornrows, right. Right, is, a diff- is a kind of different kind of cultural appropriation, right? But then I'm also looking at this article right now where Jeremy Lamb, the blogger himself, is called out for his own past racist, uh, race, you know, racist wow. past <laughs> in terms of cultural appropriation himself and his use of the N-word on his Twitter account because he, you know, associates himself with, let's say, ur- like urban culture, right? So there's this other kind of background that he's dealing with right now, which is that he himself is kind of doing some of this stuff. So I just want to make sure that I was understanding that Jeremy right. Lin and Jeremy Lamb are different, yeah. but that this yeah. is kind of the same. Yeah. yeah, and when I was just sort of preparing for this conversation and thinking about it, it's really hard for me to not think about this in a way that falls into the whole of adjudicating who is right and who is wrong and who's better and who's worse, which is really deeply uninteresting to me insofar as I think for the most part we can agree that when somebody asks you not to do something, you shouldn't do it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know, like when it's something as small as not using a word, not wearing a dress, right? It's, it's, it's really not hard. Mm -hmm. And so, but even as I had that in the front of my mind, it was hard not to fall into that trap of, well, this is better than this and this is worse than that. And, but is there a right way to appropriate culturally? I mean, that's one question that seems to be behind. Is there a, is there an, an one that doesn't warrant offense? I mean, I would ask everybody. Is it possible to not right. appropriate culture? I agree, yeah. Right. It's, yeah. it's On the one hand, it's not possible, but then on the other hand, is there a time when it's appropriate? Or I, That's why I think the, you know, the discussion around power is an interesting one, because in the kind of Jeremy Lin yeah. basketball player you know, situation, that represents a very clear kind of power differential, mm-hmm. right? In this situation, uh, it's a little more muddied for me, um, not because she's white and she's appropriating, you know, Chinese culture and you could make a case that these are both kind of hegemonic, although there's a whole discourse around right. the East, right? Being, yeah. But then the question of this, you know, Jeremy Lamb himself also kind of undermined by the very fact that he himself is appropriating. So my question is like, is there, is there, what do you do? It's, you're kind of stuck, but you can't avoid appropriating culture, but at the right. same time, is there a way, intent to me is not an important part of this question because that's just fetish. It's, you could have all the best intent in the world and still be blind to your own positionality, right? So, But I think, oh, go ahead. Is there, I'm just saying, is there a way to do it that's not offensive? Right. And I think what you're getting at is not that, not just that intent itself is, is boils down to just fetish, but also that our ideas about culture and who can speak also boil down to that same kind of fetish in the way that the Washington Post takes tweets from people who have Asian oh, yeah. pictures <laughs> and says, look, here's an Asian person who thinks that this is okay. And, and, and implicitly making the argument that that carries more weight than right. somebody who not even, we're not even talking about somebody who's non-Asian or who's white, but somebody who doesn't have a picture of a, like the little, you know, Twitter icon that, yeah. yeah. And this conversation on top of that um, kind of excludes um, and reinforces the idea that someone that looks East Asian is not American. Yeah. Right? Like they're excluded from that Americanism because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm still, I still have the question about Kezia Dom's parents. Like what is their nationality? You know, because. um, I mean, they identify themselves as white. Right. Yeah. Whatever that means. Yeah. Again, but it, but it's like, is it are they first generation immigrants or, you know, at some point, I just think that um, 
it's a very difficult question to even begin to ask in terms of, you know, forget about having the answer. Mm. But really, I don't even... I think it'd be interesting to look at, like, instead of the differences between those, like, what's common across them. And, like, it's, um, I mean, you guys pointed out something about identity. So, like, this goes back to identity politics, right? It goes to discussions of authenticity. Um, and it also, you know, is about fashion in the sense that, you know, um, and, like, I, I wonder if it, like, what relations it's obscuring by us talking about this and debating on that level. Well, you're asking, like, what are we missing by making this a conversation strictly about identity? Is that a different way of... I mean, I'm asking what it is that we're taking for granted while we're discussing this, because I feel like that's indicative of where the real power is and what this is doing, right? And so this is like, you know, this symbolizes something. And it seems to be, you know, whether or not people get mad at it, I don't think is a big deal. Like, what does that do anyway? Right. What does it do when people are offended? And it also assumes that the only active way, the only active audiences are the ones that even responded. But I think inattention is also an active response. And I think a lot of people don't even attend to this question. Mm -hmm. And we can see that because of the way fashion designers also, you know, like, why this time? And does it, you know, like it's, yeah. You mean why this time as opposed to what? No, I mean, it's, it's something that is a common discussion. It's not a big deal. Like, I mean, why are... Why so it's are not a big deal, the, the whether or act not of wearing the dress or whether or not people are mad about it? Both. Yeah. Like, all it does is indicate, like, where our discussions are, which I, I feel are the bigger deal is the bigger deal. This is where the bigger deal is. Is what kinds of cons conversations get had around this? what we take for granted in these discussions around whether people are offended or not. I just, yeah. I mean, and, and it comes back to this idea of offending people. Like, right. why does that matter? Like, are we not allowed to feel anything? You know, like, can't we feel offended? Can't people offend us? Like, why not? <laughs> Since when is it that we have to be, like, on this um, kind of, you know, Prozac nation idea of, like, we cannot feel anything uncomfortable? Yeah. Um, like, what kind of society does that create? Does anybody want to go head-to-head -head with Monera on this one and say we should care about that? Yeah. Well, yeah. go ahead. I mean, I don't, I, I don't necessarily have an answer to that as much as the first part of your um, comment, which is, you know, that we're spending all this time debating things on the kind of symbolic or representative register as a way of probably not dealing with the actual, right, um, things that are l less less symptomatic or not so removed from the actual debate around race. So that's, you know, obviously this concern for minor differences becomes a distraction, right? The second part of the question, though, is a lot harder, which is, um, is there no room to actually have an opinion that might go on counter to somebody? And I think there's this um, kind of rhetoric of outrage, mm -hmm. right, that allows you that immediately puts other people on the yeah. defensive and gives you the moral high ground to say, like, hey, you're appropriating my culture. But I think um, I think it's really important who's appropriating which culture. I don't think, I mean, is, all cultural appropriation is not equal. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Nobody's <laughs> getting mad at Southern Hemisphere yeah. fashion designers for appropriating white American Right. Nobody's getting that's not that's never really an issue. It's usually the other way around when like a British designer appropriates or, you know, yeah. or, or some kind of. I, I would remember, disagree. 
Okay. Because I think that in the sense here, we call it cultural appropriation, and elsewhere we call it mimicking, and not also inauthentic. Right. Right. So this authenticity, so authenticity is... yeah, debate continues, right. in my opinion. I'm just thinking about that. I remember that episode that Alan told us that your dad are telling oh, your yeah. dad. <laughs> my dad's upset that the chain grocery store near his house in central Pennsylvania, where there's a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch people, is selling Pennsylvania Dutch pre-made food. It's selling chicken corn soup or whoopie pies or whatever because it's a chain grocery store and at the local grocery store. And he says, well, cultural appropriation isn't a real thing, but why don't, why don't they care that these people are appropriating our culture? You know, this grocery st- even oh, though the corporation even though he doesn't, yeah. he, he prefaces it by saying cultural appropriation isn't a real thing, but this corporate grocery store is appropriating our culture and nobody's saying anything about that. So that's know? authenticity, right? That's problematic on the level of authenticity and then on the level of power. Let's try yeah, to maybe Yeah, because power do. is the thing we haven't talk, said, but that is obviously relevant. But I actually, can we bookmark that? Because I, I feel like, Anne, you were going to say something yeah, about why we actually should care that people are offended, which I want to hear because I think you may be in the minority in this room, so that I, I want to so hear. Uh, yeah, so I, I feel like there is so much to the language or the power of language, right? Like, I, I can't remember which theorist, but she talks about speech acts and, like, the power that's embedded within... Sure. Who? Judith Butler. Judith Butler. Butler. Okay, yeah. So, you know, and it, I'll, I'll just bring this up really briefly, but in the use of the N-word, for example, which was brought up earlier, right? Like, people's, you know, kind of clear issue with that from within that from within the black community and saying like you can't use that word it is our word and we are reclaiming a historically like harmful word that has been used in ways to oppress us in our own terms and other people are not allowed to use that word right which i think is totally fine like i think that that makes the most sense right and in in that that was a recent shift i feel like um but i think there's power to that i think there's there's so much power in people saying what is bothering them and saying what's offensive to them. And this is actually a conversation about whether or not you agree with political correctness, right? Yeah. Is it stifling? Is it is it just intense censorship? Or is it actually a way in which people feel that they have any agency in negotiating power of discourse, right? And in, in everyday speech, right? So yeah. whether or not that's on Twitter or like in these more like social media spaces in which people are explaining or, or is, are, is are expressing their anger with this, I think that is powerful in the attention it attracts. And also kind of then the community is then able to kind of have agency over what can or cannot be said about their own communities and reclaiming that power. I would just really quickly, I mean, on the one hand, I, I really agree with what Munira said. Like, you know, to me, my interest is not staked on adjudicating who can wear what, who can say what, that kind of thing. But I really agree. I mean, you're, you're correct about the power of, of words and, and discourse. And this reminds me of um, in her interview in Ephemera Journal that I was referring to earlier, um, when Esed says, I'm just reading here, quoting, Similarly, what is so difficult when people say, don't use the N-word? What difference does it make to you to not use it? There are plenty of other words. And, and that, I mean, to me, if somebody's saying, no, I prefer that you don't do this, and there's no good reason that you need to do it, you defer to them. I mean, that's just, to me, that's a very basic thing of, of human interaction. You don't say, no, I have a right 
that you can't take away from me to say the N-word or to wear this certain kind of dress because who cares? Like, they're asking you not to. It doesn't matter if they're correct in asking you or not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And in doing so, in deferring, you give people, like you're saying, the ability to determine how they're talked about, right, in in the sphere like Twitter. And and that seems like an important thing to me, so I understand that. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'm sort of coming in between... Um, I think, first of all, I did not deny the power of language. Right? No, no, you didn't at all. You <laughs> so didn't at all. The power of language, totally agree. And I don't think that we should compare this conversation to the N-word because the N-word yeah. did something different in the world. This, what right. is it doing? Like, what right. has it done? What is the history of this word or, or this, this dress? And what is it doing when people wear it, right? And I don't think that we should just stop doing things because people tell us that they're hurt. Um, that would completely limit our agency. But but if, my point was, if there's no harm in not doing it, right? But there is, there is harm because in we not have to, saying it, go ahead. in not doing it, right? Because like it starts, I'm offended at, you know, that dress you're wearing, big deal. And then it goes, I'm offended at the way you speak about this, big deal. I won't use this. But, but there, but you can draw the line there. I don't think the slippery slope applies because you really can draw a line between wearing a dress to prom. I think we can all agree. You can, that you can choose a different dress, you know, uh, but when your ability to make speech that you care about, then that's a, a larger problem, you know, but I just worry that if, um, that's all, that's all. I, I think we need a more precise, um, way of defining when we should listen to others. I don't think it should just be because they're offended. And yeah, that's that's what I'm saying is there has to be a better reason because otherwise I don't think we would have much agency in anything. And I do think it is a slippery slope, but yeah. Well, if you take people at their word, meaning um, if you assume that you can take people at their word, then there wouldn't be a he- as big of an issue with listening to somebody's kind of a f- offense at something. But the fact is that we're not in that community and Twitter is certainly not the forum for that to happen because it's reactionary and things get reduced to their most, let's say tacky qualities so that they can travel well and get retweeted. Right. So, so we don't have that. We're not working on that basis that you can trust when people say they're offended, that they're actually offended because they're telling you like, Hey, this is where I draw the line. I mean, you know, would there have been a way for this, um, this young woman, uh, to, to, to wear this dress, that would have been just slightly less offensive. Like, I'm just trying to think if you can, what are the things that would contribute to her, this thing being less offensive? For example, if you were taking, let's say, like the Saidian approach of, like if she did an inventory of herself and said, I know this is where I'm coming from. I recognize that I'm white largely and I recognize that there's a history of blah, 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 blah. But I'm doing this because... She doesn't even know that this is not a dress worn by women for the yeah. most part, right? So there's al- already the issue of ignorance. But would that have made it any better if she had done that kind of work ahead of time to say, hey, I know it still doesn't deal with the fact that we're talking about appropriating Chinese culture by a white woman versus, let's say, in the Jeremy Lin, you know, like a, a white or a Chinese person uh, appropriating, you know, uh, a person of color's hairstyle, right? That's a very different thing. And it's very different than the N-word. But the question is, like, with something like this that seems to be so uh, kind of in the middle of this gradation, you know, how, do you, how would you have moved it back towards the, well, I guess it's okay. Well, like, is there a way to even do that? I, I guess, okay, this is a little bit different than, well, I guess it's okay. But one thing that I think 
maybe this steps too far into the like who's got it worse kind of scales thing but i do think it's worth mentioning that she bought the dress at a used shop and i do think that's incredibly different in terms of what kind of um not discursively different right but um it wasn't Forever 21. It wasn't Forever 21. Whatever. It, she's not buying it from some company that cranks this out, sells it to, to people in the, in the U.S., probably using sweatshop labor, probably using really other really horrible um, economic practices, probably doing great harm to the environment in the process, right? She bought it at a, at a used store in her town, which is something that um, I do think at least slightly mitigates the action itself. But I could also see somebody arguing... Well, no, because once you've posted the photo, you've done this sort of speech act, and that's it. Doesn't matter what the what the um, physical origin of the dress is. But may I ask what harm wearing this dress did? Yeah, you may. What offended this blogger? <laughs> yeah, right. Who is clearly not innocent of similar offenses, right? So that I guess that's some. I mean, there were comments on both sides of the debate. You can expect mm-hmm. what all of them would have been. So I don't know because people have to say something about things. Well, I think it's I think it's more than okay, so I feel okay, yeah. So obviously I wasn't trying to be reductive about the subjugation of black bodies in America and of Asian bodies in America. Clearly, they're very different and Asians occupy a space of privilege within the racial hierarchy and have engaged themselves in anti blackness, right? And then as you said yourself, yeah. Jeremy Lamb also use the N-word yeah. and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So I am aware of that kind of power differential. I, I get that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that Asian bodies and Asians throughout history have not been subjugated by the U.S., right? Has, have not been barred to citizenship and rights through exclusion and things like that, right? So I think, and then that goes into all these different racial n- notions of the yellow pearl as threats to white white bodies in America, right? This like kind of white national like anxiety around Asian-ness, right? And then also plays into like Orientalism. Like we have this like racialized fear of Asians, yet we'll still take their fashion, their style, their their plates, right? Ornamental things that then we'll, we'll take and choose that as an ob- object of of our choosing because it's aesthetically pleasing, because it's fashionable, because it's trendy. And we'll take that and appreciate that in our culture, but we will not allow them to occupy the same rights as as whites in America. So I, I think that's, I mean, that, that goes back to Orientalism, mm-hmm. right? All these historical notions of Asians that are arguably still functioning in different subtle ways in America today. So I think the the back the backlash against this is to say we are we shouldn't repeat these kind of or, ornamental objectification of Asian aesthetic when clearly there's so much more there. You mean that it goes beyond that this act of putting on this dress goes beyond that kind of fetish of the ornamentation of a certain culture, or you're saying that that's enough? That in itself is enough to warrant a kind of offense. Yeah, I think that in itself, because it misses all these things, like it glosses over histories and like things like. Right. So then how do you, short of just barring it, right? Because I think that's the kind of resistance that Minera is expressing a little bit is that like you can't get through life without offending people unless you want to spend most of your time qualifying the things that you say rather than saying them. Right. So the question is, do you, um, is the remedy to simply not do it or is the remedy to find 
less offensive ways to do it, you know, or, or, or ways of doing it that aren't, you know, because when you talk about somebody like Judith Butler, right, she's talking about the way that, and specifically gender has been sedimented into this naturalized, reified form, right? And that, that the practice that she's proposing as a counter to that is the desedimentation, right? Looking at these practices that have been naturalized into what we believe as being true or essential about women or gender, right? So then, then, then the question that I'd have based on that is, so does, are we talking about that? Are we talking about a, a practice which allows us to desediment the way in which power differentials or uh, authenticity, problems of authenticity are kind of reduced? Because again, you're not reducing it, but Twitter reduces anything that you would, might say into like the most inflammatory version, right? So the question is, we, li- we don't live in a reductive environment, at least maybe we don't live in a, an environment as reductive as Twitter. But then how do you address that in the world of, you know, mass, <laughs> yeah, like social media? Because we're talking about either you eliminate it or you find some way of uh, pragmatically addressing it by desedimenting it or finding some practice that allows you, if you don't outlaw, you know, uh, appropriation, right, then how do you confront it then? Because if you don't, because people but, are still going to do it. But but I think it's worth noting when you say outlaw, you mean socially outlaw. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's I, again, a relevant distinction yeah. to make because it's too easy to, when this slips into the whole freedom of speech thing, we have to remember it's not the government censoring the no, speech. No. And that doesn't mean it's not important, but, if we but all agreed, it's a social censure. Right now. Yet. Yeah, I know. I know. I know, but... but Hate speech. But my question is, why do we have to find ways that are less offensive to culturally appropriate? Why do we have to culturally... Well, I'm saying, I'm saying we, have to, we have to define... To me, we have to define how... When cultural appropriation is its most problematic, right? Because it's not... Because, again... It has something to do with power differentials, right? It has something to do with, like, problematics around authenticity. We have to kind of decide what the criteria that make it it's offensive. Not because we're trying to figure out ways to work around it, but so we understand, identify what is it that's most problematic about it. So, um, because this, you know, it's not such a clear-cut case, right? It's, I mean, I understand that, um, you know, Asian cultures have been, you know, uh, uh, fetishized and marginalized in very specific ways, especially, you know, representationally, especially based on aesthetic, you know, value, et cetera. But the, the, the question is, um, not when it's okay to culturally appropriate, but what, what makes it so offensive? And if you reduce that thing, does it actually make it okay? Right? It's a different, it's a different, I'm not, in, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on your side. I, I think you have to go through life. You have to He's on Minera's side. Minera's side to, sorry, <laughs> because you have to, but I don't really understand how to resolve those two positions. I, right? I, th- I think this is an issue also of commodification of resistance as if we can actually yeah. resist through like changing our clothes. Um, and I think that the more interesting questions about fashion are, for instance, who's producing the cotton, who, uh, you know, the raw resources, who are the laborers. Right. And I think this conversation really obscures that. Like, we do want to talk right. about power, but what parts do we need to talk about right now? And I do understand, um, understand this argument about objectification. Um, and, and representation is important. But I think this logic of small differences makes us get stuck into conversations that just kind of reinforce the overall power. I mean, the overall ways of doing things, the overall totality, whatever you want to call it. And maybe, I mean, to me, also the overall um, reification of culture and race as as fixed. And I say that agreeing with, with 
Anne's point, right? Like that is a real thing, right? You can't just say, I'm just going to decide not to reify it and then it won't be reified in the world. And thus I can do whatever I want and say whatever I want and wear whatever I want without worrying about other people's offense. But um, I do think propping cultural appropriation up as some objectively true, actionable thing in the world, right? Creates all kinds of problems for what is a culture and who gets to speak for a culture, right? Mm -hmm. I still disagree with the slippery slope thing, though, because then, yeah, you're going to offend people through your whole life and all the time, but then do I never acquiesce to somebody who asks me to do something if it's inconvenient or, or not what I want to do? No, of course I acquiesce when I, when I can. And so to me, the issue is not saying, why are we talking about this? Because it's a slippery slope to X, Y, and Z, like being censored by the government, that kind of thing. The answer is to draw the line hard and, and stand and stand by it. And maybe some of us draw the line on one side of this particular case or the other. But to me, the issue is the line drawing, not the act of saying that something is cultural appropriation or saying that you are offended, but rather making clear the distinctions of what the problems are, which, which Anne is, is doing here. But then, you know, in other cases, like, like as we're saying, the N-word, the reasons that that's a problem are very, very different and have a, a different material reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I do agree. Oh, sorry, you wanted to talk about <laughs> I think Minera, Minera talks about histories, and I think there's a uh, feasible ways to distinguish where should we draw the lines? Because she talks about the N-word shouldn't be compared with these two incidents because there are like that kind of suppression and slavery history behind the N-word. So we should compare this N-word with these two incidents. And I think it is, uh, I mean, it's understandable. Uh, but, but I would like to ask to what extent, uh, I mean... I would like to ask and say, how do you think, to what extent, the girl who wears the prawn dress is appropriating the culture of Asians behind what historical context? So I, okay, so I agree with a lot of you here that I don't, I don't know if it's useful to be like, this is cultural appropriation because. Like, I think I agree with you, Ellen, in that if someone is offended, then listen and at least be considerate of the when it's no them. skin off your back. Huh? When it's no skin off your back. When it's not really, you know, when the when the thing at issue is wearing a different prom dress, which is a small thing. That's very moralist, isn't it? Like when you when you should listen to others. Well, I'm going to read a um, definition of cultural appropriation mm-hmm. just so we have a basis, yeah. right? And we can decide if we agree. Or this is from the New York Times piece about this incident, quoting. Um, Susan Scafidi, law professor at Fordham University. Um, Cultural appropriation is defined as taking intellectual property, traditional knowledge, cultural expressions, or artifacts from someone else's culture without permission. So that's an interesting whose permission, at what time, what gives them the right to give you permission, etc. This can include the, quote, unauthorized use of another culture's dance, dress, music, language, folklore, cuisine, traditional medicine, religious symbols, etc. Good luck. So so there's etc. at the end, which could be, and then a whole bunch of other things. And then there's just this question of permission, again, is, you know, so if I get permission... From my well, that's what the Washington Post is, is saying. The Washington right. Post is literally saying the Chinese people en masse give right. this woman permi- permission. Right? right. Not just one. Therefore, right. They say Chinese aren't upset about this, right? Right. Yeah. right. So the only thing that they attribute, again, and this goes back to Anne's point, is 
the, are these like this these clothes, this music, this whatever? But what about thoughts, ideas? What the U.S. Right, do we all have to get permission right? from Arabs to use Arabic numerals? You know. Mm-hmm. Maybe so? Yes. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Sorry, Anne, we cut you off, though. You were, like, in the middle of a point. No, it's okay. So, no, but I want to hear. So, again, I, I, I have to reiterate that my my evoking of the N-word is to, I guess I didn't flesh out that idea, but is to really heavily emphasize why people care, right? Why people care about these little things, right? Like, saying something or wearing a dress. Like, these are all everyday things. But I think there's there's that argument that scholars have long made that, you know, it's, it's the particularly everyday mundane types of racism that then reinforce larger structures of racial domination or that is systemic, right? That then normalizes it and naturalizes it and kind of makes it kind of just what life is, right? So I, I feel like there is power, again, there is power to, right, saying something about this, saying that you're uncomfortable with it, saying that you're offended, you know, voicing that concern because otherwise, if it goes untalked about, people are still not okay with it, right? People from within that community that are offended by it. And so by not addressing it, I, I think is the same thing. It doesn't really do, what does that do? Does that then reify these structures that, I mean, so I think there's, there's more harm to not saying something than there is to actually saying something. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm totally with power of language, that representation matters. And again, but I just don't know what harm this photo did what harm this person did. And I, I know that, like, I've bought something. No, I'm not going to admit it on air. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I've bought from Zada something that I'm pretty sure is inspired by Chinese dress, right, or East Asian dress or something. And this stuff has been going on for a very long time. And I think it is important, like we were talking about before, why this was brought up then. I don't think it is about her wearing that dress. It's just a way to express something else. Yeah. And, yeah. No. So it would be interesting to hear what this harm this did. Well, yeah, that's the, that becomes the metric by which you can say this is legitimate offense or it's just outrage culture, which is what you know the other side of the debate is, that this yeah. is just American outrage culture or liberal outrage culture. There's worse. burn, there's like bombing, there are murders, there's violence. But, but, well, I, yeah, ahead, and wait, and we, don't, we don't see outrage from that in the same way <laughs> in Washington, t- whatever, post or whatever it is. We don't see the same outrage, but it's a, like outrage over fashion. Come on. Well, the Washington Post is an outrage, right? The Washington Post is saying... You shouldn't be outraged about this. But it's reporting that outrage, right? So it's giving a voice to certain forms of outrage and not others. And why is it that like we're talking about like hurting people's feelings when we can't even make a decision about human trafficking or slavery or, you know, um, racism itself? I agree with you, but I don't see why they're mutually exclusive. Well, she's. I think I'm not so, saying it's yeah. mutually exclusive. It's, a waste, it's, it's yeah. time better spent or resources. Sorry, it, I don't mean to. No, totally. It's important that these are being given voices, others are not. Whenever you articulate something, you are automatically disarticulating other things. So it does matter what we say and what we do not say. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a way of reading this as, as um, um, that kind of need to uh, attend to such minor differences as a, you know, there's uh, a, a kind of shame about not having the capacity to deal with actual things, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, some kind of psychic formation, symptomatic formation of actually not wanting to deal with that, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't want, we, why, why do we continue human trafficking? Because it clearly works for somebody mm-hmm. and it works for enough somebodies that regardless of how many conversations you have, 
it continues to happen. Yeah, right? it makes you feel good. Like every day I'm not wearing Chinese clothing. I'm resisting. Like, right. no, I'm not. No, I, oh, I'm I, not hurting somebody's feelings. Well, okay. Like, Can I, I just say, know. too, that I think the reason that the Washington Post reported on this and the New York Times reported on this is because it's a bad example, right? Because in the grand scheme of things, this one girl wearing this one dress and posting it on Facebook isn't the hugest deal in the world, and yet people got very upset about it. They're not reporting about big, big brands completely, you know, stealing stuff and making it impossible for people usually small artists, people who make like ethnic clothes and sell them to tourists, right? These are great examples of huge Zara, Urban Outfitters, all these big hip brands ripping those things off. And the Washington Post doesn't report on it because it's not as easy to paint the like crazy liberals that way, even though of course the Washington Post is a liberal paper, but I mean, they're reporting on it because it's a bad example. I think that goes back to intention and doesn't really talk about it, what it does. And the fact that these art that article is like very polysemic and it did work in a certain way to make us even discuss this here, right? Sure. Like, so even if they were saying it's ridiculous, we obviously haven't seen that it's completely ridiculous to discuss it. And I'm sure lots of other people haven't. So this like, you know, so intention of whoever that author was is, I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure if, I just want to edit some points uh, outside of race, critical race theory. It's just, I mean, in LGBT uh, movement, there are also similar kinds of argument regarding to what constitutes as sexual harassment or what did not, or what is sexual discrimination and what is not. Mm-hmm. And so actually we, uh, queer, uh, in queer movement, we've had that, that kind of argument that uh, we shouldn't just judge something as sexually harassed something as sexual harassment or sexual discrimination just because some someone just feel being offended because it actually foreclosed the possibility of a conversation and actually queer act are mostly constituted by confrontation and offensive mm-hmm. yeah so that's what and uh, uh, I see also related to this topic but uh, that kind of argument actually that facilitated a reflection upon identity politics because, mm-hmm. I mean, it also related to how people see identities, identities as what identities have the authenticity to decide what is right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, so... In queer movement, they really want to jump out of that kind of a dilemma or foreclosure of cancel canceling any possible conversation. So um, that kind of conversation you can also search from Jack Harveston's mm-hmm. blog in his definitely yeah his bully bloggers blog. Yeah, he actually talks about that queers are just wanted to be offensive. If we are not offensive, then we are not funny at all. (laughs) (laughs) My thought is not formed, but for me, this issue of cultural appropriation, I actually don't really have a stance on it. Like, I I feel so conflicted all the time. You know, there are instances where I'm like, this is way too far. And this is actually, you know, so to your point, Myrna, about, like, there are larger issues in the world. 
yes, there are larger issues in the world. And yes, we have to deal with them, you know. But at the same time, I still think that if people are offended in other ways, it's, it really is just reflective of the way in which power and domination disseminates into everyday life, right? And that these are maybe, perhaps this is the way that people feel they can have a voice in something like this. Maybe they can't stop human trafficking, right? But they can say something about what affects them in an everyday kind of life, right? So whether that's, I mean, the power of protest, resistance, like in, in more concrete forms, I understand what you're saying. There are concrete forms of violence, but that's not to say that violence isn't also embedded in language. In other ways, even if it's not as like material in that way, like I, I understand that too. And I feel, I feel that way sometimes about certain like calls to this is appropriation, this isn't. But I think for me, my position on it is if someone is hurt by something, then I won't do that. And I don't think people should do that if people have exclaimed that this is offending them. And that's just out of respect or out of like for and I think affective kind of kind of people's affective positionings are also important, even if it's on the minuscule micro level. I mean, I do agree that affect matters. Right. But the point is, for me, is what does this like, you know, what does this tell us? Right. The fact that they are offended. I don't think, you know, it tells us one that people believe that they can represent themselves through buying things. And that when they buy something, when they consume a dress, they're actually representing a culture, right? So that is like, I think the underlying question here is like, why are people offended? It's important to ask that question. It doesn't mean like, you know, just listening to them. It means analyze it. It means something that's important in our society, right? So but it's then, not ignore and it's not limiting. But then can you conclude, what happens when you conclude like my dad, right? All the time, even when he's recognizing it all the time that they're wrong. Like when your conclusion is always, I don't need to worry about that person's offense. This is a because I've argument. analyzed it. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to answer this, right? Because it's like, I'm not saying you can just like hurt people all the time. And I know that this is like a very fluid concept, but I don't think our discussion is really about whether or not, you know, like I, I was bringing up, you can't offend anyone because that's pretty much the only argument this thing has about cultural appropriation. Other than that, like when we talk about power differential and so on, I think there's power as well in the commodification of culture. Right. And who is doing that? And I think that that is also an interesting, you know, I don't think that um, I think that discussing like offense precludes this other conversation and like talking about real power differentials, even in language and representation and so on. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's also um, uh, this is kind of based on the conversations we had later in the quarter, right in this group. There, there's kind of two considerations. One is the consideration of how we discuss this uh, in, in terms of scholarship, mm -hmm. right, as academics, and then, uh, which is a privileged position, right? And then, then there's, you know, life on the ground of like, so then how do you deal with life? I think we're having, we're almost having both of those conversations simultaneously, and I think we have to distinguish because, um, you know, some of your and maybe my resistance to political correctness comes from the lived experience on the ground of like getting from point A or to point B in your existence as a human. And the other one has to do with the privilege of be having the time to take this kind of uh, seemingly minor incident and parsing it out. Right. So um, they're almost two different things to talk about. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, I, I, yeah, definitely that it has something to do with lived experience on the ground because it's like, it's, it, it is, I think, about degree of harm that we right. have to think about. And yeah, like it's way more harmful to not talk about the drones. Right. I mean, this is a dramatic, I know it's a dramatic example and 
but yeah, I just I I don't care if someone <laughs> you know like I just don't care about that girl right and I don't think anybody should yeah I actually but but you care <laughs> you care about people caring about it you do because you're exactly. willing to yeah because that is where I think the power is, right? It's why are people even talking about it in the first place? Why did it go viral? Why did the Washington Post pick up on it? These are the more interesting questions for me.